In this weekend episode, three segments from this week's C-SPAN Washington Journal program. First, a conversation with Gallup Editor-in-Chief Mohamed Yunus on the polling organization's Mood of the Nation poll, an annual survey conducted in the beginning of the year in the run-up to the State of the Union Address. Then, U.S. Comptroller General and Head of Government Accountability Office's Jean Dodaro discusses GAO's examination of how coronavirus relief funds have been misspent. Plus, both Congress and President Biden are signaling a desire for increased oversight of social media companies and so-called big tech. We speak to Sasha Haworth from the Tech Oversight Project and Carl Sabo from the group NetChoice on what that might look like. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. First, Gallup Editor-in-Chief Mohamed Yunus on the big takeaways of the polling group's annual Mood in the Nation poll. Um, with the exception of Democrats on some issues, the mood is generally dissatisfied. Um, we've been asking uh, questions about a series of policy issues, but also general aspects of how things are going on in the country um, for decades, really in this poll now for over 20 years. And we've hit some record highs and lows. Um, most of them are really not going to be a surprise. Uh, the number one thing that Americans are dissatisfied with, really, um, is the nation's efforts to deal with poverty and homelessness. 83% of Americans overall are dissatisfied with that. 65% um, of Americans are dissatisfied with the level of immigration coming into the country. 63% um, of Americans are dissatisfied with policies on guns. So it really runs the gamut. Certainly um, the most impactful, I think, for all of us is people's assessment of the economy. Um, most Americans are definitely dissatisfied with the economy and actually have a pretty uh, gloomy perspective on what's going to happen in the next six months. But there are a lot of partisan differences on that that we can get into. The headline on the poll, if you want to look it up at Gallup.com, Americans still glum about the State of the Union in most areas. Uh, how does that compare uh, to other presidents, other administrations, as they uh, prepared to, to talk to the nation about the, the State of the Union? Where does this rank historically? Um, it's, it's really a continuous story of a slow decline. Um, this is certainly not something that's unique to Biden's presidency. Um, these really negative perceptions we've seen track now, um, really for the past uh, three presidents, Biden, Trump, and Obama. Uh, the general sense of Americans about national government has been on the very quick decline. Um, it's interesting to note that uh, partisanship is always talked about, and we do see it in our data, that's another sign of this gradual uh, deterioration, really, of what one of your previous callers talked about, the country coming together. So it's not unique to Biden. It's really a continuation of this slow decline, uh, consistent decline that we see with Americans' level of satisfaction with many facets 
of life. And, and that's really a bipartisan sentiment, uh, with some exceptions. And then let's dig into some of those partisan differences that, uh, that you alluded to a minute ago. So two that jump out from your polling is uh, Americans' satisfaction with the influence of organized religion among Republicans, 60 percent saying they are very or somewhat satisfied with the influence of organized religion in U.S. society. Just 34 percent of Democrats. If you skip to the bottom of what you're seeing on your screen, that last question talked about the size and power of the federal government. Just 14 percent of Republicans saying they're very or somewhat satisfied with the size and power of the federal government in U.S. society today. 52 percent of Democrats saying that they're very or somewhat satisfied with the size and power of the federal government. Those differences, Mr. Yunus. Yes, and those differences are actually unique to point out because the most important problem most consistently mentioned by Americans has actually been poor government and poor leadership. And it's not just Republicans. Uh, Democrats also are pretty frustrated with national government. But certainly in terms of the role religion plays in public life, it's not surprising uh, that Republicans would have a different view than Democrats. I think the most important thing on that metric really over time has been the degree to which the level of dissatisfaction has actually decreased. Um, so we used to see 65, 70% dissatisfaction in earlier generations of the role of religion in public life, um, people wanting to see it play more of a role. And that's actually waned off quite a bit, um, coinciding with the rise of people who identify as nuns, not with a U, but with an O, people who don't have a religious affiliation. Um, some of the other really important differences are along the lines of um, gun policy, uh, attitudes about the quality of the environment in the nation. 62% of Republicans, for example, are satisfied. 23% of Democrats are satisfied. But I will point this out, John. When you look at the partisan differences, it's important to keep in mind that this year, Republicans actually look a lot more like independents on many of these questions. It's really Democrats who stand out. Um, on some of these metrics. And, and it's not surprising, given the partisan swing that we've seen. Democrats with their president in office are more positive on a lot of these metrics. But when you look at independents, they're actually much more similar to Republicans um, on some of these metrics. One of the really important topics that don't get a lot of uh, focus in the media, per se, but have consistently come up in our polls is concerns about immigration. Right now, um, as I mentioned, over six in 10 Americans overall are dissatisfied with the level of immigration in the country. When we ask among those dissatisfied, 64% say they want less immigration into the United States. And it's not necessarily something that Democrats are overwhelmingly opposite on or happy about the, the, the state of immigration policy. So immigration really is one that continues to come up, uh, both in terms of our most important problem, but also in terms of this satisfaction metric. The other one, of course, the huge one is abortion. Um, 62% uh, of, Amer of Americans who are Republicans say that they're satisfied, for example, with the status of women in society. Only 46% percent of Democrats share that view. 39 percent of Democrats are satisfied with the nation's abortion laws. 13 percent of Democrats share that view. So nobody overwhelmingly pleased with the state of abortion uh, laws and policies in the country, obviously for very different reasons. But the Dobbs decision has really triggered a big focus on women's rights and abortion uh, as a topic once again in this uh, in our times. That was Mohammed Yunus, editor in chief of Gallup. Next, a discussion of waste, fraud, and abuse found in several federal pandemic recovery programs. 
We want to welcome back to the program Jean Dodaro, who is the U.S. Comptroller General and head of the Government Accountability Office. Mr. Dodaro, please remind our viewers what is the mission of the GAO and when do you get involved in holding the government accountable? Uh, GAO exists in order to support the Congress in carrying out its constitutional responsibilities and to enhance the performance and ensure the accountability of the federal government for the benefit of the American people. Uh, the scope of our responsibilities is across the entire breadth of the federal government's responsibilities. We are in the legislative branch of government to ensure our independence in auditing the executive branch. We get involved uh, on our own initiative. I uh, have broad authority wherever there's federal funds or a federal nexus. We also uh, have a number of requirements that Congress puts in law in, in uh, statutory language or committee or conference reports. We also respond to requests from committee chairs and ranking members. We treat both the same, our nonpartisan organization, independent, professional, and fact-based. Mr. Dodaro has been with GAO for 45 years, here to talk about coronavirus spending, the money that went out during the pandemic. How did the GAO get involved with that, with those programs? Congress, uh, in the original CARES Act legislation in March 2020, included a statutory provision for GAO to audit the money, to look at its effectiveness in dealing with public health and the economy. We were asked to provide monthly briefings to a set of congressional committees and to provide bi-monthly reports uh, to the Congress and the public. And that was done for the first year. Uh, then we moved to quarterly reports and now we're reporting on a periodic basis. We've issued 10 government-wide reports. We've issued um, close to 200 other individual reports on selected aspects of the process. We've made over 350 recommendations uh, as a result of our work. So we're still reporting and we'll continue to report as some of the coronavirus money is available to be spent through 2026 and some uh, a little bit beyond that. What have been the takeaways from all of this investigating and reports that you have done? Well, uh, we think that the uh, funding helped provide stability to the economy. It helped a lot of small businesses. It had helped uh, provide uh, help through unemployment insurance, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. So there were trillions of dollars provided to individuals, to businesses in the private sector and uh, pu public sector organizations, state and local government, nonprofit organizations. Uh, some of the money went to support Operation Warp Speed, which helped to expedite the development of the vaccines uh, that we've had. Uh, we thought that the federal response to it could have been better organized. We had made recommendations for a national testing strategy early on, early on in September 2020 for a better vaccine communication distribution plan. Uh, there were supply chain issues that we've made some recommendations on how the stockpile could be better uh, set up to deal with 
this issue. So it was across the wide range of areas. We also, Greta, uh, issued a number of recommendations on the trade-offs that were made. There was a lot of urgency to get help out to people early on in the process. And as a result, there were trade-offs made that limited meeting the accountability and transparency objectives of the legislation. There was more fraud than anybody wanted. Uh, there were a lot of improper payments that were made. Uh, and so we've made a lot of recommendations to agencies about how they can shore up their management practices to better prevent fraud and improper payments so that the money uh, was helpful, but it could have even been more helpful if so much had not been lost to fraud and improper payments. CNN reported on one of your recent uh, reports to Congress and to the American people, pandemic jobless benefits fraud likely tops $60 billion. What happened there? Well, there were several things. One, uh, in the original legislation, uh, there was uh, provisions to allow for self-certification. Uh, people, all, all they had to do is say they were eligible for this. They didn't have to provide supporting benefits. Uh, states were encouraged to waive the waiting period, which normally had been 21 days before uh, unemployment insurance benefits could have been paid. Uh, and uh, they waived uh, some of the documentation requirements. And so as a result, uh, you had uh, some relaxed internal control standards early in the process. Now, Congress eventually addressed this in December 2020, but by then, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars had already been spent. Now, the other problem here, Greta, was that the states who administer the unemployment insurance program, it's uh, normally the states collect uh, taxes from employers and pay unemployment benefits. Federal government only gets involved, aside from providing some administrative support on a continuing basis, when there's a, a big problem, there's a recession, or in this case, the pandemic. But the states, uh, because unemployment had been at record low levels right before the pandemic, their staffing was down, they have a lot of antiquated IT systems, and so they were overwhelmed with the number of claims. I mean, it's one of the few times you've had all, almost all sectors of the economy have unemployment problems at the same time. So the combination of relaxed uh, application processes, the huge amount of money that was there, and the states being overwhelmed, that led to uh, the programs being more susceptible to fraud and error than they otherwise would have been. Gene Dodaro, if you took this money thinking that, or you, you, you applied for this money thinking, well, it's there, um, and, and you actually didn't qualify for it, is the federal government going to ask for it back? Uh, yes. And also, the federal government will prosecute those people who willfully misrepresented uh, their situation in order to gain uh, this information. There's been over uh, a thousand people already who've been pled guilty or have been convicted. There's over 600 people already facing, additional people facing charges. The Small Business IG has 500 
and 36 active investigations underway. The Department of Labor Inspector General is opening up 100 new cases every week. The Congress has already extended the statute of limitations for the Paycheck Protection Program and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program from five to 10 years. Uh, and the inspector generals have asked the Congress to do the same thing for unemployment insurance fraud. And I might point out, Greta, as you mentioned, our $60 billion estimate, that's a conservative estimate of the low end of the fraud. We're currently putting together uh, a much more comprehensive uh, estimate, and the fraud in that particular program is likely to be higher than the $60 billion. One of the concerns that you had with these improper payments is that the agencies lacked controls to prevent, detect, and recover improper payments. So you said that they can get this money back, but do they have the tools to do so? Yes, they're getting a lot of uh, tips. And, and this is on the fraud part, but it can also include improper payments. Uh, the IG at the Labor Department, for example, has received uh, complaints and tips well, close to almost 200,000 that they're tracking down. We've received hundreds of complaints at GAO through our fraud net uh, uh, tool that we have available on our web website. And so there's uh, all those issues and there's additional examinations underway. Now, all that being said, Greta, uh, the, the track record in recovering a lot of this stuff historically is difficult. This what's called normally the pay and chase model afterwards uh, is not really the most efficient way to distribute the money. The best approach is to prevent the fraud and improper payments from occurring in the first place. That was Gene Dodaro, U.S. Comptroller General and head of the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Next, Sasha Haworth from the Tech Oversight Project and Carl Sabo, from the group NetChoice, discussed the prospects of increased federal oversight of social media companies and so-called big tech in the year ahead. So that people know where you're coming from, tell us a little bit about your organization, how you're funded, and the position you take generally when it comes to these tech issues. Ms. Haworth, you go first. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, we were founded about a, a year ago, just over a year ago now, a um, small nonprofit organization. Um, and I really founded it because I, over the years, as working in politics, I'd become increasingly... Um, disgruntled and disgusted by the rampant disinformation that's being spread on social media platforms and the rate at which it's unchecked. Also, as a parent becoming dissatisfied with the um, rampant social me uh, me mental health crisis that's being um, unchecked by social media companies. And there was didn't seem to be enough of an advocacy um, arm to ensure that these tech companies, by that I mean the largest ones, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple, are truly held accountable. So like I said, we were founded a little over a year ago now um, in order to push for oversight. And that includes antitrust reform. It includes pushing for um, accountability insofar as disinformation and um, accountability as far as privacy rights as well. And how you're funded? We are granted um, funds from like-minded organizations. Um, there are a number of them on our website. We also take funding from small and mid-sized tech companies who are um, uh, like-minded and share values for more competition on, in the online marketplace. Mr. Sabo. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having us. Uh, 
So I'm from an organization called NetChoice. We are a free market trade association that fights for free expression and free enterprise on the internet. Uh, our members include large businesses, like some of the some of the members my colleague over here just mentioned, but also some small ones, uh, the, the the usual players. And what we see our role as doing is to kind of plow the field so that they can compete on the merits. And we don't try to have the government pick winners or losers. We actually prefer to let the free market decide. And we've been doing this for about 20-some-odd years. And it's wonderful because uh, our members, who you can see everyone at netchoice.org, they're all listed prominently on our website, but they don't control us. What controls us is our guiding principles of free expression and free enterprise on the net. There will be times when we make statements that some members like and some members don't like. And that's actually how we maintain our principled nature going forward. So it's wonderful because we're somewhere between a think tank and a trade association. That's enabled us to operate effectively for over 20 years. Social media companies part of your portfolio then? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things about social media is we have to figure out what is the definition of social media at the end of the day? Because everyone keeps trying to define it. But as an attorney, uh, I also teach at George Mason uh, Law School, the details are in the definition, and definitions really matter. So if we were just to say a place where you can post and host comments, well, that would absolutely cover bestbuy.com because I can post user reviews. Is it something where I can send direct messages? Or is it a mixture of the two? So definitions matter when it comes to defining what a social media platform is, but absolutely. If you want to go with classical examples of like a, a, a Facebook slash meta, whatever they're called today, or uh, YouTube and Twitter, absolutely, they're members of NetChoice. Ms. Howell, how would you say Washington approaches social media and what they do, and particularly what are the areas of concern that, that you may think need oversight or not? Oh, I think we're far overdue for oversight over tech um, companies. And, you know, I think that we've spent the last multiple, you know, the last decade, but mostly the most 18 months, the last 18 months to a year, um, trying to fight for antitrust reform. Um, you know, companies like um, the tech companies that are um, underwriting Carl's organization um, have spent a quarter of a billion dollars just in the last year alone against one bill, a quarter of a billion dollars. Now, Carl's organization only spent about a million of that, but that me- measly million um, is more than the operating budget of my entire organization for a year. So that's the fight that we're up against, and that's what Congress sees, um, and that's what is what is lobbying Congress every single day. So we're pushing for stronger antitrust enforcement, and Carl mentioned, you know, uh, free market. He mentioned competition. The the definition of competition is more companies in the marketplace, right? Um, these four largest tech companies are monopolies. They have bought up all their competitors. They use their monopoly power to unfairly preference their own products. Um, so that, And because consumers don't have any choice, they're forced to return to them again and again. So that's a cycle that Congress needs to address. And I, and I think that given the president's State of the Union on Tuesday, um, we're, we're looking in that direction. Let's hear from President Biden from early this week talking about social media. We must finally hold social media companies accountable for experimenting or doing running children for profit. It's time to pass bipartisan legislation to stop big tech from collecting personal data on our kids and teenagers online. Ban targeted advertising to children and impose stricter limits on the personal data that companies collect on all of us. 
Mr. Sabo, first of all, the president including this language overall and the specifics he talked about, what was your response to those? Yeah, it, it's, it's a lot to unpack because I wouldn't actually say there were any real specifics in the statement. They were just kind of broad policy principles. So one of the things he discussed is uh, creating omnibus privacy legislation. That's something NetChoice vehemently supports. Uh, I've been actually on the Hill repeatedly calling for a national standard for privacy legislation. Sounds like something that the president's calling for. We hear the calls from Congress. And it's what the American people actually want. So just to give you a quick example, if you were to drive from New York to D.C. to Virginia, you would actually be subjected to three different sets of privacy laws. And that doesn't make any sense. We're a transportation-based country. We go all, the, all over the country. We travel all the time. And our privacy rights and principles should remain the same regardless of where we are situated. And that's why we need a national standard for privacy law. And so I absolutely support the call. But once again, the devil's in the details. One of the things that we've seen is when it comes to the privacy laws out of Europe or California, they actually fail completely. You don't see them being enforced at all. So instead, you just have laws on the books for the sake of having laws on the books. Getting to the issue of protecting our children. I'm a parent. I've got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. My wife's a child therapist. She's on the front lines of what we see when it comes to parents, children, and social media. But what I always kind of get worried about is the government deciding what is best for me and my family, or some of the laws that we've seen introduced turn that power over to the social media platforms and ask them to do the parenting for us. And that's completely inappropriate. You can try to set age gates, but you have plenty of children who are very mature. You have a lot of 21, 30-year-olds who are really immature. So the idea of setting an age standard as the basis by which we operate doesn't necessarily make sense. Instead, we need to give parents more power. And one of the things that is absolutely missing that is actually being looked at in states like Florida, like Virginia, like Indiana, is to actually have a curriculum centered around social media. Much like how we teach reading, writing, arithmetic, or we used to teach home economics and shop, we need to teach social media uh, use and that's the best way to actually get forward. Ms. Haworth, same thing. You know, everything that Carl says should really come with a Surgeon General's warning. Um, the fact that he's funded by the social media platforms sort of um, unfortunately negates a lot of what he has to say. Now, I'm a parent, too. I have two kids under three, um, under four, actually. He just turned three in October. Um, and it, I shudder to think what kind of online um, ecosystem is waiting for them when they ask me for a social media account. Um, the, there are um, policy options being debated in Congress. Um, we have to hash out the differences and get a privacy law on the books, not only a nationwide standard, but also something that protects our kids' privacy, because the cost of doing nothing is far too high. And I think that that's what Carl seems to be suggesting. Well, you can't give it to the government, but you also can't give it to the social media companies, which I happen to agree with, because they will never self-regulate, as we know from the big tobacco fights in the 1990s. Um, so what is the option that I, I don't hear an alternative from Carl at all? Um, what I did hear uh, President Biden say in the State of the Union is I heard him stand over um, a divided government, something that you know he can deal with pretty well as the sort of master of the Senate, and say the word antitrust um, from the largest bully pulpit in the world. And that is the first time a president has even uttered the word antitrust from a State of the Union address in nearly 50 years. In fact, the last time that a president said antitrust in the State of the Union address was the same year that C-SPAN was created. 
Um, so that shows to me that President Biden is going to preside over a new era of taking on the largest monopolies of the modern age, and that is the four big tech companies, Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. Quick so, response. Yeah, yeah quick questions. response, because one of the largest companies on the planet is often left out of this discussion for some reason, Microsoft. It is the largest corporation on the planet, and for some reason, they're never mentioned in, in the companies that you listed. But one of the challenges that we actually see when it comes to antitrust law is exactly what's been exposed from things like the Twitter files, is the ability of government to kind of lean on social media platforms, lean on businesses to promote and remove content that they like or dislike. And we actually just had a case settled this week, uh, an antitrust case that went against the federal government. Uh, it was a frivolous case. The Federal Trade Commission, the agency that oversees it and brought the case, the staff said, don't do it. And the divided uh, commission went ahead and plowed forward, lost overwhelmingly in court, got shot down. And the statement from the person who brought the case was, oh, it's okay if we lost. Uh, you know, we're trying to rewrite the law. Well, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm somebody who believes that laws don't come from the president. They don't come from the executive branch. They don't come from bureaucrats. They come from our elected representatives, Congress, or our state representatives. And at the same time, Think about all the taxpayer dollars that were just wasted and flushed down the toilet. That's money that we are paying as we right now see an incredible deficit ahead of us. My children, your children are going to be suffering and paying this debt, and yet there, we need to rein in the government control. So the answer is not create new laws and give more unrestricted power to the government to go and spend taxpayer dollars attacking American businesses. Instead, we should use the existing laws. And when it comes to antitrust law, it's really easy to prove if you have the facts. It is one of the easiest cases to prove. Unlike uh, even murder. Murder is really hard to prove because you have to show intent. You have to show a premeditation. Antitrust law is really easy to prove. All you need to show is market power, abuse of market power, and consumer harm. And the thing that's often being ignored is there's no consumer harm. In fact, there's no market power. You, uh, YouTube fights with uh, Meta every day. Meta's lunch is getting eaten right now by TikTok. You need only look at the stock market to see how these companies are suffering right now. That was Sasha Haworth from the Tech Oversight Project and Carl Sabo from the group NetChoice. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website at cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time.